Hebrews chapter number 9 this morning. And uh, we're going to be in a couple of places. This is not our text, but I believe it's uh, vital to the understanding of our text this morning. Look with me in verse number 11. The Bible says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered in once, into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I want to read that to you once more. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Turn with me one page to chapter 10. You may not even have to turn. But look with me at verse 19. <laughs> the Bible says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus." by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want to read that verse to you once more for emphasis. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Notice this. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now turn to one other place with me. Numbers chapter number 19. The book of Numbers chapter number 19. I'm working you pretty hard so far, amen, but I'm going to try not to do that to you the rest of the message. Numbers chapter 19. I take great interest in that phrase, having our hearts sprinkled. There's a lot of dispute today concerning the mode of baptism. I think there's no question to Bible believers that baptism by immersion is the biblical means of baptism. And yet sprinkling is mentioned in the Word of God. What context is it used in? It's interesting that there is a Greek word for sprinkle, and it's not the Greek word for baptism. It could be no error in translation. There are no errors in translation in your King James Bible. But there can be no question that this is not referring to baptism. But now the question is, what is it referring to? Numbers chapter 19. The Bible says in verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer, without spot wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp. One shall slay her before his face. Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger, and sprinkle of her blood directly before the congregation, tabernacle of the congregation seven times. One shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh and her blood with her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. 
Then the priest shall wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his flesh in water. Afterward, he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until the even. He that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water, bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean until the even. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, lay them up without the camp in a clean place. It shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. He that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even. It shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever. He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead, and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law when a man dieth in a tent. All that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. Whosoever toucheth one that is slain with a sword in the open fields, or a dead body, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. And a clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it into the water, and sprinkle it upon the tent, and upon the vessels, and upon the persons that were there, and upon him that touched a bone, or the one slain, or one dead, or a grave. The unclean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean, or the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, and wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean at even. But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation, because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him, he is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute unto them, that he that sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes. He that toucheth the water of separation shall be unclean until even. And whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean, and the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'd ask that you'd illuminate your word to our hearts and minds through the power of the Holy Ghost. Father, I pray for the unction, Lord, and the leading and the guidance of your spirit. And God, I just pray that each and every heart would be touched according to your will. Now, Father, we need to hear from you this morning. Lord, we thank you for the good congregational and choir and special singing. We thank you for the sweet fellowship. But Lord, if we've come here and do not meet with you, we've gained nothing by this time we've spent. So, Father, we'd ask this morning that you would just manifest your presence in a mighty way, that you would do in our hearts what only you can do. Lord, help us to glorify you in it. 
Father, if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of salvation, that they might be saved before it's everlasting too late. And we'll be sure to thank you for all that you do in us and around us and through us. Father, we ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I know that I've read to you a lot of Scripture this morning, uh, but I believe that if we're going to understand the Old Testament, we understand it in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches that Christ is the culmination, that Christ is the, uh, the ultimate masterpiece, the final product. Christ is what every Old Testament sacrifice was looking towards. Uh, as I've already said, there's much debate concerning this notion of sprinkling that's spoken of in the Word of God. And some people attribute the idea of sprinkling to that of baptism. But you'll find that baptism was not found in the Old Testament. It is a New Testament ordinance given to the local church. It does not save, it does not help save, but it is a picture that is given showing the new birth, that we have been buried with Christ uh, through His death, and that we're raised spiritually by Him to walk in newness of life. The Old Testament believers knew nothing of the new birth. They knew nothing of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. And so baptism cannot be found in the Old Testament in a proper sense. And yet we find that this sprinkling that's spoken of is spoken of only concerning Old Testament saints, only concerning concerning the Old Testament law. It's spoken of in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, but only hearkening back to the incompleteness of the Old Testament sacrifices. In the book of Hebrews chapter number 9, we're told concerning this sprinkling sacrifice uh, that it was for the purifying of the flesh. Here in Numbers chapter 19, we have the uh, commandment and the statute given uh, from God to Moses concerning this sacrifice. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard the phrase a red heifer have you ever heard that phrase before there's much dispute today concerning the nation of Israel and there's much uh, there's much effort that is put forth to the breeding of what we would call a red heifer for 2000 years a proper red heifer that would have been fit for an old testament sacrifice has not been found in Jerusalem ever since the destruction of the temple there has been no red heifer the bible teaches that the sacrifice of the red heifer was given for purification uh, it was not just a offering that was given to appease God or to please God, but it was necessary that a man might come into the presence of God, that he be purified by this sacrifice of the red heifer. You say, preacher, what's one of the reasons they don't sacrifice in the land of Israel anymore? Because there's not a one of them, neighbor, whether in particular, whether by association, there's not a one of them under the law that can be considered pure. They're trying to breed the red heifer so that they can reinstitute uh, Judaistic ceremonies so that they can begin to sacrifice again. But until they get a red heifer, according to the law, they're considered uh, impure. Now, I'm thankful this morning that we're not looking for a red heifer, aren't you? I'm thankful this morning that we're made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful we don't need a red heifer to approach unto God. But do you know that in the Old Testament, there's a principle taught here that applies to our lives as believers. Uh, do you know that the uh, work of Christ on Calvary had a twofold purpose? It was a manifold purpose. 
purpose, but two of the purposes in it was to take away, number one, the sin of the world. John seeth Jesus coming and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Notice the singular tense of that, the sin of the world. It is not speaking of sins in particular, but of the sin nature of mankind. When Christ came and died on the cross for you and I, He came that He might save us from ourselves. You see, neighbor, it's not those around you that's sending you to hell. It's your own stinking rotten sin nature that sends you to hell and that would send me to hell. That's the problem. That's the issue. A man can do all the good works that he wishes, but he can never eradicate his sin nature. But then there's sin spoken of in a different sense. The Bible says in the book of 1 John that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's used in the plural tense. This has to do with our particular actions, the things that we do, the wrong things that we commit on a daily basis. So Christ was sent not only uh, to save us from our sin nature, but also to forgive us of our daily actions of our sin. The Day of Atonement is spoken of in the Old Testament. What you would call today, you'd see it on calendars, is Yom Kippur. And that was the day of national atonement. That was the day when the high priest would prepare the sacrifice and go into the holiest of all, the holy of holies, and he would appear before God, and he would give this sacrifice for the sin of the nation. He was not there atoning for particular sins, but for the sin of the whole nation, for his own and also for those that were around him. But yet the Bible makes a provision for those not only that are sinners by nature, but sinners by action, just like you and me. I wish I could tell you today that when you get saved, you're never going to sin again. I know too many Baptists to tell you that. Somebody say amen. And that's me right here, too. I wish I could tell you that the moment you knelt in contrition and repentance and called in faith upon a holy God and a blessed Savior and He washed you of your sins, I wish I could tell you that you would never sin again. But the Bible teaches uh, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so in the Old Testament, a provision was made. A man could only give a sacrifice by going, uh, a priest could only give a sacrifice by going before the presence of God. But what happened? What got him to the presence of God? His sin barred him from the presence of God. How could he ever get to God with his sin in the way? The Bible teaches that these unclean Israelites, and at one point or another, every Israelite would have been considered unclean, that there was a separation, there was a barrier between their presence and God. Uh, Of all the sacrifices, we find that this is the one sacrifice that was not offered at the altar, but it was offered in a different place. The Bible says that this sacrifice was to be taken outside of the camp. You say, what's the camp? That's the encampment in which they lived. That would have been considered the city when the nation of, uh, or when the city of Jerusalem was established and built and the temple was there. They would be taken without the gates of the city and there that sacrifice was to be given. You say, why is that? Because those that were without the gates needed a way to get in the gates. Their sins had barred them from entrance into the fellowship of an almighty God. Do you know the Bible teaches that you and I, though we've been washed of our sins, though we've been eternally redeemed by the grace of God and by the blood of Christ, that our sins still have the ability to interrupt our relationship or our fellowship, if you prefer that word, with an almighty God. The Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 59, verse 1, uh, that behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you 
from God. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Can I put it as plainly as I know how this morning, church? If a believer has sin in his life, it hinders his fellowship with an almighty God. There's a lot of us today, church, that are living a, a subpar Christian life. We don't have the fellowship with God that we need because we have sin in our lives. We don't have the, uh, the love relationship with God that we ought to have. Hey, listen, what, what really is revival? I think it was Vance Havner that said that revival is people falling in love with Jesus Christ all over again. What is it that's stopping us from falling in love with Jesus Christ? It's that we've got another love that is taking His affection. It's the love of sin and self. The Bible teaches here in Numbers chapter 19, though, that God had a provision that was made. Every Old Testament sacrifice looked forward to Christ or pictured Christ and His work in some way. Taken in and of themselves, none of them can uh, represent in their totality the work of Christ on Calvary. But in a typical sense, if you take all of them collectively, or to use a theological term in a congruent manner, all of them together, working together, you have a broad panoramic view of the work of Christ. But do you know that even those were shadows? Even those were shadows. Christ is the only one that could tell the story of the gospel truth. Christ was the only one that could die for your sins and mine. Christ, He said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do Thy will, O God. When He came, we didn't need any more sacrifices. Hallelujah. It's not by the blood of bulls and of goats, but by His own blood that He entered once into the holy of holies, into the holiest place. Here in the institution of this, uh, this statute and of this principle, we have a picture of a way, of a, uh, of a uh, method that God had given and prescribed for an unclean man to repair his relationship with God. And could I say this morning, I want to take just a couple moments and preach to you on the red heifer of restoration. Do you know that the nation of Israel could look back to this sacrifice of the red heifer and they could know that they had a means of coming into the presence of God? Uh, though they had the Day of Atonement that had absolved their national sins, that had pardoned their national sins or atoned for their national sins, however you'd like to describe it, still their individual sins could separate them from God. But God had a provision for a way a man could repair his relationship. Aren't you thankful when we've messed up that we've got a God that allows a way back home? Aren't you, may, you may have sin in your heart and life today. Nobody knows that, or if they do, they ain't told me, amen. Uh, you may have sin in your heart and life. And you say, how can you say that, preacher? Because you're flesh and bone, just like this man is. And you're prone to fail, and you're prone to sin, and you're prone to backsliding, just like I am. And the fact is, you may have sin in your life. Can I tell you, you don't have to despair this morning. There's a way for you to get back close to God. You don't have to get discouraged today. There's a way for you to get back close to God. There's a provision for you to get back close to God. I want you to notice a couple things about this red heifer. I want you to look with me in verse number 2. I want you to notice the qualifications. As is already said, uh, the nation of Israel is to this day, and there's places like the Temple Institute and places trying to find a means, and uh, a lot of uh, quote-unquote fundamental organizations or evangelical organizations are trying to assist them in hopes that it will uh, uh, somehow hasten the return of Christ. I believe that's the acme of foolishness. Uh, the Lord's going to come when He's ready. Amen. Uh, it don't matter whether they've got a red heifer. It don't matter whether they've uh, got a red sheep or red dog or red bluebird. Amen. God's going to come back. Christ is going to return when He's good and ready to return. When the Father says go, Christ is going to go. But there's, there's groups trying to breed these red heifers because there were certain requirements that were given concerning uh, these cows. I want you to look with me in verse number 2. The Bible says, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, 
that they bring thee a red heifer without spot. Without spot. You've probably heard the terminology without spot or blemish before, but do you know what it really means? The word spot deals with the idea of an inherent flaw. Something that a person is born with. We live in a day where there's a lot of people that are born with some form of birth defects. And that's quite uh, often the case. And if you're on Facebook or if you have a lot of friends, uh, no doubt you know somebody that's got a little one that was born with some kind of birth defect in some way, shape or form. This is what we might call a spot. Nothing that the child has done. Nothing that uh, the parents have necessarily done. It's just the result of a sin-cursed world. That we would have to contend with those things. Not the result of their uh, their explicit sin or experiential sin. It's just the fact that we live in this old world. Uh, do you know that the Bible teaches that this red heifer had to be born without any inherent spots? No birth defects. Nothing about it. Uh, some of you, I know my, my in-laws, my outlaw in-laws, they used to breed dogs for a little while. And uh, there was a lot of... I, I see a dog and I see a dog. Amen. I mean, that's just... That's how I am. I look at a dog that's got four legs and tail and ears. I think, yeah, it looks fine. You know, a dog's a dog to me. Uh, but they could probably, if they were to see a... Uh, uh, they used to breed boxers. If you used to have a boxer dog and if you was to uh, uh, bring that dog before them and ask them, say, what do you see? They could probably name quite a few things. They could probably say, well, uh, the ridge should be higher upon its back or the ears should be taller or straighter or shorter or floppier or crooked or I don't know what. But they could look at it and they'd see some things that were naturally wrong with that dog. The high priest was trained with the ability ever since he was uh, in the training for the priesthood to be able to look and to examine these heifers or any sacrifice determined that it was without spot. Do you know that the Bible says of Jesus Christ that he knew no sin, that he did no sin, that in him was no sin. Do you know that our Lord and Savior was born without a sin nature? When our Lord was born, he was born perfect in absolute perfection. You and I, this is in stark contrast to you and I, because you see, we're born with sin natures. You don't have to teach a little one how to do wrong. They'll figure it out on their own. Some of you say amen. You know that's the truth. You don't have to teach a little one how to do right. They, they are how to do wrong. They know instinctively how to do wrong. They're born with a sin nature. Do you know the adults? You don't have to teach them how to do wrong either. They know it instinctively. You ever met somebody that instinctively their first instinct was to lie? Have you ever known somebody like that? I mean, they'd say, "Why tell the truth when you can lie?" You know, and just instinctively, that was the first thing that they did. Hey, getting in trouble. First thing that you do is lie. You ever known somebody that flew off the handle immediately? You didn't have to talk them into getting mad. They just got mad immediately. It's almost like they did it naturally. You know why that is? It's because they did do it naturally. (laughs) That's our nature. We're born sinners because we're born with an earthly father. We're born of natural parents, natural progenitors. We're born with that sin nature. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, for by one man sin entered into the world. Some, some of you ladies ought to say amen right there if you don't anywhere else. For by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men in that all have sinned. Christ was born without an earthly father. Without an earthly. The only time he's called father in scripture, it's out of the will of God and it's by his parents. Amen. He's never called, uh, Joseph is never called his father, except when it's out of the will of God and by natural, by people that are acting in the flesh. The Bible teaches that he had a heavenly father, born with his nature. So this red heifer had to be without spot. But the Bible says that it had to be without blemish. 
Now, we know that terminology blemish a little bit better. Uh, some of you ladies that wear makeup know about that, that, that phrase, blemish, a little bit better. Don't hit me now, amen. But, but you know that there's, uh, that's what it's there for. It's to cover imperfections that have occurred. You ever seen a baby's skin? I'm sure that you have before. we got babies around here. And you've probably heard people say when they compliment a woman about her complexion, they'll say you've got skin like a baby does. Usually when a baby's born, uh, they just that, that skin is so perfect and so smooth. There's not a thing wrong with it. It's new. Uh, but give them a few years. Amen. <laughs> they'll be bumping their knees and their elbows and getting bruises and scars. And that's what the intention of things like makeup and cosmetic product, it's to cover those blemishes that we have, things that have occurred as a result of living in this world. It was the same concerning this red heifer. Uh, whenever they would be out in the field, uh, it could be that a predator would get after them, maybe leave some scars upon them. It could be that they got in, uh, they fell over some fencing or fell in a ditch or any number of things could happen. And they, through falling, could encounter and could incur a blemish. But the Bible says that the red heifer had to be without blemish. In other words, without inherent flaws, uh, but without uh, flaws that it had obtained through its own fault. Do you know that our Lord and Savior not only was in him no sin, but the Bible says who did no sin, neither was guile found in him. Not only was Christ born in perfection, but he lived in perfection. He never once sinned. He never once told a lie. He never once got unrighteously angry. He never once did a single thing. He never stole a single thing. He never had a lustful thought. Never once did he commit a single sin. The Bible says not only that it had to be without spot and without blemish, but the Bible says that it had never had a yoke upon it. Never had a yoke upon it. You see, the yoke was what would be used to join typically two oxes together, and they would use that and they would plow the ground. The yoke was a symbol of their bondage to the earth. That was their existence. That's why they existed. I mean, a, a, an ox or a heifer was not there really to do anything but to be a beast of service. That's, that's why they were there. That's the only reason you don't want either to slaughter it or to use it for service. That's the only reason. And so the yoke was indicative of the reason of their existence and of their bondage to this earth. You know, the Bible teaches that you and I are born with a bondage to this earth, that we're under the bondage of sin. It's natural for a man to do wrong. But do you know that even when a man does wrong, uh, when the Holy Spirit of God convicts him, he's grieved by it? It's natural for a man to do wrong. You and I, we might sin, but the Holy Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit and shows us that we're wrong. And sin is something that can bring us into bondage. The lost, every one of them, are in bondage unto sin. They may not know it. They may not know it because they've never had the yoke took off. They may not know it could be any better. They've never had the yoke took off. They may not know what liberty is. They've never had the yoke took off. But nevertheless, they're still under bondage. Do you know that our Lord and Savior, the Bible says not only that He did no sin, in Him was no sin, but He knew no sin. He was not under bondage to sin. I'm going to say this, and some people might disagree with it. He did not have the capacity to sin. Sin had no hold upon our Savior. Not only did he not have a sin nature, uh, and I know that the Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are, but the Bible also says, yet without sin. He was completely free of sin in every way, shape, fashion, and form. This heifer had to be perfect, absolutely perfect. It said that two black or white hairs would completely disqualify it. Completely disqualify it. And not only, listen, <laughs> boy, this is a testimony to our Savior. It had to be about two or three years old before it could even be sacrificed. 
It didn't just have to start out right. It had to stay right. Our Lord didn't just start out right. He stayed right. He was right when Calvary came. He was right when His hour came. He was perfect when He was offered as a sacrifice for you and I. There were some qualifications that it had to meet. I want to say a word not only about the qualifications, but I want to say a word about the sacrifice. I want to say a word about the giving of this beast, about the ceremony, or what we might call the presentation of this heifer. Look at verse number three with me. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, and ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp. One shall slay her before his face. Uh, the things that were uh, required to be taken without the camp were those things that were unclean. Something was unclean. It was banished from the presence of the children of Israel and from the presence of God. In other words, this heifer was to be treated as though it was unclean. Now, there probably wasn't anything more clean in the nation of Israel when there was a red heifer in the presence. But though it was more clean than anything else, it had to be treated with the reproach of something unclean. It had to be treated as though it was wicked and flawed and sinful. For it to be the sacrifice that the nation of Israel needed, it had to be cast out from amongst their presence. Do you know the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, that our Lord was numbered with the transgressors. He did not die the death of a righteous man. He died the death of a condemned criminal and a sinner. Though there was no one ever past, present, or future that could match the perfect righteousness of Christ, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The first thing that had to be done was there had to be reproach put upon it. It had to be cast out from amongst them. It could not dwell in the midst of them. It had to be cast out and treated as an outcast, treated with reproach, treated with disdain. The Bible says of Christ that there is no form nor comeliness that we should desire Him. The Bible says we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was treated with disdain. The reproach was placed upon him. But I want you to notice not only the reproach, but the reduction of this. How was it to be offered? Look at verse number 5. Notice what it says. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight. Her skin and her flesh and her blood with her dung shall he burn. This was unusual. Not all sacrifices were given in this way. Typically, part of the sacrifice would be used, but that which would be considered waste or dung that's spoken of would be cast out, would be taken somewhere else. But the Bible says concerning the red heifer that it had to be consumed entirely. There was not a portion of it that was to be left untouched by the fire of judgment. Do you know that the Bible says he poured out his soul? He poured out his soul. There's not a portion of our Lord and Savior that was not emptied out on Calvary's hill in judgment from Almighty God. i tell you part of the problem. No, let me sum it up. Let me say this is the entire problem in Christianity today. Are you ready? The entire problem is we want to give part to someone who gave all. That's the problem. And we think we're somebody for giving part. I mean, we think we're somebody for giving a little bit when he gave it all. He didn't just give it all for you. He gave it all for the whole world. We think we're something for giving just a small part. Hey, we give a few hours in our week and we think we've paid our debt. Not even close, neighbor. He paid it all. 
every bit of it. He paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. He gave all upon Calvary's hill. There wasn't a portion of Him that was left untouched by the judgment of God. He did not just bear your sin. He became your sin. His whole body and mind and soul was poured out in judgment unto an almighty God for you and I. Every bit of it. We see the reduction. But I want you to notice not only the reduction. But I kind of like this. Look at what it says there in verse number 6. Notice the reach of this sacrifice. The Bible says in verse number uh, 6, And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet, cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, hyssop and cedar and scarlet. What's the significance? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know what you believe. You, you probably don't believe anything about it, to be honest. But uh, let me tell you what I believe about it. The cedar was the greatest tree, the tallest tree, the biggest tree that they had in that vicinity. The hyssop, on the other hand, would have been the smallest tree that they would have had in that vicinity. And the scarlet is always a picture of that which is darkest and most stained. You know what I kind of think that believes? Uh, Or that means, I kind of believe that that means that Christ, you see, He can purge your conscience from the biggest of sins. It doesn't matter how big your sin is that you've committed. Christ can save you. Not only can Christ save you, but He can purge your conscience from dead works. Remember, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about the purging of the conscience here. Uh, We're not talking about getting rid of the punishment of sin. Uh, The day of atonement, the lamb slain took the punishment of sin. We're talking about doing away with the guilt of sin, with the unrighteousness that afflicts our souls and our minds as a result of our sinfulness. And the Bible says it doesn't matter how big your sin is, we can have confidence that Christ was good enough and big enough and righteous enough and died enough and suffered enough to pay for your sins and mine. I believe He can take care of not only the biggest sins, but I believe He can take care of the smallest of sins. i tell you the problem. Uh, there's some people who think their sins are too big for God to forgive, but there's some people who believe their sins are too small for God to notice. They think their sins are too small for God to notice. There's some people who think if they do a little bit of charity, well, I'm all right. There's some people who think, well, you know, I'm not all that bad. It, it don't take all that bad, neighbor. If you come short of the glory of God, that's enough to send you to hell. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it's those smallest of sins that can hinder us. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Sometimes it's those smallest of sins that can hinder us from serving God. You know why? Because they accumulate. A big sin we might not be able to uh, to live with for very long before we say, Oh, God, purge my conscience of this. Show me that you've forgiven me. Validate your righteousness in my heart and mind that my flesh might not rise uh, in obstinance against it and in insolence. But those small sins, you know what they do? We sin and we sin and we sin and we sin and we never take it before God and we never ask forgiveness. You know what happens? We begin to have this complex that we're... I couldn't do what those other people do. I couldn't do what those... I couldn't serve God. Look who I am. I I couldn't witness to people. Look at how my life is. Do you know that Christ has the ability to save you uh, if you're a lost sinner? But He has the ability through His blood to forgive you of even the smallest of sins in your life. And they need to be forgiven. But do you know the scarlet? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Do you know that the Lord has the ability to forgive you of the darkest sins? The darkest sins. Uh, You know, sometimes... I'm going to be honest, if you knew what went on in the hearts and minds of every single person in this room, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. 
That's the truth. I mean, if you knew what the devil put into the minds and hearts of those that we call our closest friends and family, you probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. And that's true of this preacher, too. Do you know the darkest sins that we would never utter to others? And usually it's the things that go on in the mind. Usually it's, it's those things that go on in the mind. You know why? The mind is a playground. And we'll take liberties in our mind we won't take in our body. Do you know that Christ has the ability to forgive you of those sins? You say, preacher, you don't know the things that I've thought about. No, but I know that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Preacher, you don't know the things that I've imagined. You don't know the malice I may have had in my heart or the lust I may have had in my heart or the pride that I may have had in my heart. It's dark, preacher. It's dirty. It's filthy. No one could forgive me. Oh, if people just knew the things that... Hey, God does know. And He loves you anyway. God does know and He died for you anyway. God does know and He's willing to... Hey, if we confess our sins... 1 John 1, 9. Not if we confess the smallest. Not if we confess the biggest. Not if we confess the easiest. There's no qualifications. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. It's not about you being faithful or just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only do we see this, but we see the uh, representation of this. It's interesting that Eliezer, the priest, would take the blood and he would sprinkle it upon the door, the tabernacle of the congregation before it. I wonder why that is. I kind of think it's because this, because I kind of think that man's pride would cause him to approach that door. But I kind of think that when he would approach that door, he would see that blood and he would be reminded of two things. One of them, that his sins could separate him from God. And two, that there was a provision and there was a way made where he could have fellowship restored. Do you know, friend, that there's two problems. There's some that won't approach God because they feel like their sins are too vast. But then there's some that will approach him, not even considering that there's sin in their life. Whether you acknowledge it or not, your sins do hinder your fellowship with an almighty God. Whether you acknowledge it, whether you admit it, whether you fess up to it, that's the fact, that's the truth of the matter. But every time that maybe the despairing sinner would approach that door, as he approaches in pride at first, he sees the blood and he would think to himself, Oh no, I have sinned in my life. I cannot approach unto God. He would then remember, but there's a price that's been paid and there's a way for me to be purified. Let me me relate something to you. Do you know that for for a long time, I'm going to tell you what I struggle with. I don't do this all the time, but I'm going to tell you something that I used to struggle with. Uh, Let me ask you this. Have you ever had something, a sin in your life that you struggled with repeatedly? You don't have to say what it is, but if you've ever had that be the case. Come on now, don't be too spiritual on me. Is that the truth? Did you ever feel this way when you'd failed and when you'd messed up? Did you ever think to yourself, I might as well not even ask forgiveness? You ever feel before like, I don't want to ask forgiveness because I'm just afraid I'm going to mess up and do it again. You ever feel like, I, I don't want to ask forgiveness because I wouldn't forgive me. Why would God forgive me? You ever say, I don't want to ask forgiveness until I feel worse for it. You know what I came to realize? <laughs> I came to realize that God don't forgive me because of how sorry I feel. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. 
thou must save. Now alone. I know that a broken and a contrite heart the Lord hears. I understand that. And I understand that an attitude of pride is not the means through which we approach unto a holy God. I'm aware of that. But let me tell you something, friend. It's not your tears that atone for your sins. It's the blood of the Savior. It's not because of how sorry you are. You say, preacher, are you saying I don't need to be sorry? Of course you need to be sorry. That's part of repentance. Repentance is not only a turning, it's a teariness. I believe that. You don't have to believe that. I'm not talking about physical tears. I'm talking about a broken heart over our sin. But it's not that that saves us. It's not that after we've been saved that forgives us. It's Christ's blood that forgives us. We look unto the finished work of Christ and we say, though I do not deserve it, though I may mess up again, though my contrition does not seem fitting, I know, yes, I know, yes, I know that by His blood He can forgive me. Why do you think it says purge your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? They're dead for two reasons. One, because they were always dead if they were iniquity. But two, if you've put them away, they're considered dead. I don't believe we come to God saying, well, Lord, you know, I'm going to go around and I'm going to do this again next week, but I'm going to ask forgiveness anyway. Hey, First John 1 night is not a kitchen sink, but it is a place of purification. It is a place where we can get forgiveness for our sins and where we can be restored in fellowship. We see there's a resource. The Bible says they would take these ashes and they would then carry these ashes of this heifer outside of the camp. You say, why outside of the camp? Because the people that need them is outside of the camp. Aren't you thankful God doesn't put what we need beyond our reach? Aren't you thankful? God didn't ask them to purify themselves and then come Him to purification. Hey, listen, God said, I'll come where you are and give you a means of purification. Be taken outside the camp. And they would be placed in a clean place. The Bible says that running water, you say, what's water in the Word of God? Well, it's two things. Uh, when it's a still water, it's the Word of God. When it's running water, it's the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible says fountains of living waters. And I would say that it's twofold. They said that the hyssop would be bound into three sticks. And so I believe not only God, uh, the Holy Spirit convicting of us, us of our sins, but the Word of God showing us the promises of God. And not only that, but God being willing to forgive our sins, there was a resource. There was a place they could go. They would go and they would take some pieces of this uh, ash. They would take these ashes and they would put them in a vessel. They would pour running water into it, not stagnant water. Not stagnant water. You say, what do you mean, preacher? What I'm saying is it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. Christ forgave you of your sins when you asked Him to save you. But if you've got sin in your life, you need to ask Him to forgive you and restore you to fellowship. Not because He's going to send you to hell if you don't, but because it's going to hinder your fellowship if you don't. He won't send us to hell. He'll never... Hey, if we have been saved by His grace, then He is bound by His Word, and He will never send us to hell. Never. Never. But it can still hinder fellowship. So there was a place they could go. And they would take that water and then they would take the hyssop. After the ashes and the water had been intermingled, they would dip that hyssop in it. And someone that was clean, say, who's clean? God's clean. Not the Pope. Pope's not clean enough to, to absolve you of your sin, to wash your sin. Not a priest. Priest, hey, he isn't clean in and of himself. He needs to be saved just like the rest of us needs to be saved. A priest cannot forgive you of your sins. Preacher can't forgive you of your sins. Your friend can't forgive you of your sins. But him that was clean, he would take that hyssop and he would sprinkle it upon them. And it would purify them. 
We see that there was a, a presentation and a resource. There was a place they could go. But I want to give you one final thing. I want to say a word about the purification. I'm just going to give this to you real quick. So hang on. I want to say, first off, there was a witness of sin. No need for purification if there's no sin. Tell you what's wrong with a lot of people in this world. They want a Savior, but they don't want to admit they're a sinner. I'll tell you what's wrong with a lot of believers in this world. They don't want to admit that they've sinned in their life. They don't want to admit that to God. What do you think it means when it says if we confess and forsake our sins? Confession is agreeing with someone about something. I think we all know that. Confession is not just admitting you've done something. It's admitting what it is. Let me tell you what I make a practice of. And I don't, I don't want you to idolize this or do this just because I do it. But this is something God dealt with me about and it's just something I do. Whenever I confess my sins to God, I try to say them in the ugliest terms that I know. I mean, if, if, I, if I've stole something, I don't say, Lord, I didn't mean to take that. I was just wanting to borrow it. And I say, Lord, I'm a thief. And I took it because I wanted to and I knew it was wrong. And God, I need your forgiveness. And, and if, if, if I have told a lie, and if I'm asking God's forgiveness, I don't say, well, Lord, you know, I, I, I thought it was different than what it was. I didn't mean no harm. By, quit your bargaining with God. The price is paid. Just confess it and forsake it. Call it the ugliest thing you can think of. It's agreeing with God about something. Seeing your sin as God sees your sin. There was a purification that could take place. But first they had to admit that there was sin. Verse 9, I think 11 and 13, all through Numbers chapter 19, uses the word unclean. Unclean. If you've sinned, the Bible says there's something between you and your God. And the fellowship is hindered. Not only do we see that there was a witness to sin, but there was a water of sanctification. There was a place where they could be, hey, his ears are not heavy that they cannot hear, and his arm is not shortened. I'll tell you what keeps you from getting forgiveness in your life. It's your pride. You don't want to go to him and, and admit that you've sinned and that you've done wrong, that you've messed up. You don't want to admit that you did it, and you did it on purpose, and you did it because you're a sinner. You don't want to admit that. You know why? The flesh don't like that. Flesh never wants to admit what it really is. Never. But do you know that if you're willing to confess and forsake your sins, that's where it ends with you. But He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll give you a final thing. I want to say that there is a warning of separation. There is a water of sanctification, but there is a warning of separation. You can see it in verse 20, but you can see it at several places in the chapter. The Bible says that if a man does not do this, he is unclean. He is unclean. Listen to me today. I'm not the Holy Ghost. I'm not your daddy. I'm nobody but a sinner saved by grace. And you don't answer to me. But let me tell you something. God knows your heart. God knows whether you have sin in your life or not. You say, well, preacher, I'm just not sure. Try doing what David did and saying, search me and try me, O God. See if there be any wicked or unclean way within me. Once you ask God to take his magnifying glass out, we're scared of doing that. We're scared of what he's going to find. We're not as much scared of what he's going to find. We're scared of what he's going to show us he found. But do you know that like it or not, admit it or not, love it or not, if you have sin in your life, it is affecting your relationship with God. It is. Just as him that was unclean, if he would not go to the water of sanctification, if he would not allow that water to be sprinkled upon him, if he would not admit his sin, it barred him. 
from the presence of God, from the fellowship of God. And listen, it even barred him from the fellowship of the other Israelites. You wonder why you can't get along with nobody? Could be there's a reason. You wonder why it is that you don't enjoy being around God's people? Hey, I know everybody's different. I understand that. I mean, there's, I want to choke half of you. Amen. Only because I, I need to get to you before you get to me, though. Okay, amen. Now, I understand. I, I understand how it can be dealing with people. And I understand. I like the old songwriter. I mean, I, I identify that used to say, you know, to dwell above with saints and love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints, I know that's a different story. I understand. It can be difficult to deal with people sometimes. Or it could be, it could be that the sour disposition, that the unhappiness, it could be that you've got something hindering not only your fellowship with God, but your fellowship with other saints. There is a warning given here. I believe it's best that we heed it, don't you?